morning. Let me welcome you to Crossroads. We're excited that you're here. You can tell, uh, if you didn't already know, it's fall break, and uh, Lebanon and Wilson County is confused because one group is doing this and one group is doing that, but we have lots of people gone, and knowing that there are lots of people gone today, all of my family is gone. Uh, they're enjoying themselves down in Florida as well as many people are in different parts of the country, the mountains, different places. Uh, we want to welcome those who will be joining us online, whether that's the audio version of today's message or they'll be watching uh, the actual broadcast of the of the message today. We're excited that they take the time to join us even when they're enjoying themselves. Now, if you were with us last weekend, we started to dive into a section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's something that the uh, Bible calls, or we actually call, it's the Beatitudes. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount was a sermon that Jesus gave on the hillsides of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, instead of encouraging people to live a life that kind of conformed with society and culture at the time, instead of living a life that was kind of like a life that everybody else was living, Jesus challenges those people who were listening to them to him, and he challenges us today to instead don't go with the flow, but instead turn your life around, turn against the wind, live life differently from the way that you see everybody else living their life. Now, these words of Jesus were actually what I call some of the most countercultural teachings that have ever been given. The Sermon on the Mount, which is actually found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, is the most famous sermon that's ever been given. Again, many people will talk about when you hear and ask who, who, who gave the Sermon on the Mount. Many people, you know, have been surveyed and people say, well, Billy Graham gave the Sermon on the Mount because they don't really understand what the Sermon on the Mount was about. And also people have been surveyed and they said, what do you know about the Sermon on the Mount? They said it was a sermon that was delivered on horseback. <laughs> I mean, that just goes to show you. So I guess Billy Graham did lots of sermons on horseback. I don't know. But that's actually been a survey that was taken asking people about the Sermon on the Mount. They thought Billy Graham was the one who gave it, and they thought that he gave it on horseback. But really, the entire point of Jesus' sermon was to help people understand who the kingdom of God is actually for. And the kingdom of God, in, in what Jesus says in the Beatitudes and in the Sermon on the Mount, is really his way of conveying to us and to that audience that day that the kingdom is really for the outsider. The kingdom of God is for those who don't feel like they're religious. It's for those who don't feel like their life is perfect and they don't measure up. And Jesus drives the point home in the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we call the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And for those that might not have been with us last weekend, when we left, I basically summed up the entire message last week in four words. And those four words are, blessed are the broken. We learned that God blesses those who are broken. We learn that God blesses those who are poor in spirit. And when we talk about poor in spirit people, poor in spirit people are those people who are broken by their own shortcomings. That's what a poor in spirit person is. They are broken by their own spiritual poverty. These are the people who are poor in spirit. They are the people who recognize and they actually admit their need for God. And Jesus says that the kingdom of God belongs to those who can admit 
that they don't deserve it. And second, last week, we learned that God blesses those who mourn. God blesses those who mourn. And I, I just want you to think about that this morning. Think about mourning. Because I'm convinced that within this room and with, this, with, it, with those that are watching and those that are listening online, I'm just going to tell you that every person that I will come in contact with today in some way or another, we're mourning. We're mourning over what's happened to us and to our country over the last 17 months. We've all lost something. Or maybe you've lost someone. So mourning is something that all of us have experienced. But what we saw last week is that Jesus says that those who mourn, now look at what he says. He says those who mourn in his kingdom, those who mourn will be comforted. So today we're moving on. Because today we're going to focus on two other areas of the Beatitudes. We're going to focus in on the humble and the hungry. And, and here's the thing. I mean, think about those two words. You see them on the screen behind me. I mean, if you've ever played any sport, those are words that you've heard. If you grew up playing any type of sport, then somewhere along the way, then you probably had a coach to say to you, you, you gotta, if you're going to win, you got to stay humble and you got to stay hungry. Again, that's what Nick Saban went in last night and told the Alabama football team after they lost, and they weren't expected really to lose. But I'm sure he told them that in one way or another. He said, you know what, you've got to stay humble and you've got to stay hungry. I guarantee you, UT's coach said that at the halftime yesterday when they were doing really well in the first half, and, and again, they went in for the intermission before they came out for the second half. He knew that there was a possibility for them to let down and not play like they had played in that first half. And he said to them, you've got to stay humble and you've got to stay hungry and all of us in this audience we've heard those words and Jesus he says that's the way to live your life stay humble and stay hungry because if you do that's when you're going to live your best life and here's the way Jesus put it that day on the hillside overlooking the sea of Galilee it's actually recorded in Matthew chapter 5 he said, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. He also said, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Now look at what God blesses. God blesses the humble and the hungry. I know many of you are probably questioning me because you, you already know that many of the translations that you and I grew up with, those translations say that God blesses the meek, for the meek shall inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger after righteousness. God blesses those who hunger for justice. Some translations say those who hunger for righteousness, for when they hunger for righteousness, they will be satisfied. God blesses the humble, and God blesses the hungry. So let's start with the first one. What does it mean to be humble? Or as some translations put it, what does it mean 
to be meek. What does it mean? Because here's the thing. Now, I want you to track with me just a moment. With many of you, like me, you hear the word meek. Our natural response to the word that you see behind me on the screen, the word meek, is that we almost respond to that word in a negative fashion. Because no one wants to grow up and be meek. But, but here's what the word actually means. The word actually, the meek, actually means, it means humble. It means gentle. It means considerate. So the word that Jesus uses does not in any way, form, or fashion, it does not mean weak. But the idea of the word that Jesus uses when he says meek in some of those translations that you and I grew up with, here's what he actually means. When Jesus says the meek shall inherit the earth, he actually means, when he says meek, he means this. He means strength under control. It's not in any shape, form, or fashion any kind of weakness. Instead, meek is actually that kind of strength under control that would be like that of a horse trainer who takes a wild bucking horse, a bronco, and breaks it. Meek is power. It's control. It's actually strength under control. In Luke chapter 18... Jesus helps us to understand this, what this all means. Because in Luke chapter 18, Jesus actually teaches a very familiar parable that you and I have heard about. And it's really a parable about humility. And, and what's interesting is this. Here's what's interesting that you may not have seen about this actual parable and the teaching that Jesus gives What's interesting is that right out of the gate, Luke lets us see the very reason that Jesus takes the time to tell us the story. Luke wants to understand why Jesus took the time to tell us this parable. In Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, here's what it says. It says, to some who were very confident, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. There's the reason. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. Now, 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 now track with me here. Jesus tells a story. Jesus tells a parable. That's what a, that's what a parable is. It's a story. And in this story, Jesus introduces us to two people. We have the Pharisee. And we have the tax collector. Now, I think you know, if you've been in church any time, especially under my teaching, that the Pharisee is always pictured to be at the top of the ladder, the top of the food chain. The Pharisee was the one who had the power. They were the ones in that culture who were looked at as the most spiritual in that culture in which Jesus was speaking so you have that one person, which is the Pharisee, and then you have the other person, which is a tax collector. But, 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 but when you think about a tax collector, I don't want you to think about your typical IRS agent. When, when we talk about a tax collector in the culture of Jesus, 
in that society, the tax collector would have actually been somebody. To, do, do you remember the guy named Bernie Madoff who had the pyramid scheme? That, that's what you have to remember when you think about a tax collector in Jesus' culture. Bernie Madoff. Get it? Made off. That's what the tax collector did. He made off with people's money. A tax collector was despised by people because he was the one that was cheating those people out of their own money. And if you look at the social ladder of that culture, you have the Pharisee at the top of the food chain, and you have the tax collector at the bottom of the food chain. The tax collector was seen as the worst of sinners. So Jesus tells the story. And look at how he continues as he tells the story. In verse 11, he says, The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or God, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. So Jesus tells the parable, and in the parable, he tells about the Pharisee, and we see this Pharisee in the story telling us as he prays about himself. That's what the Pharisee does. And he thanks God, which naturally, when you and I think we have a guy here who is a religious guy, a Pharisee, and he's thanking God, we naturally think thanking God is a good thing. But he thanks God that he is not like other people. Now think about that. Can you actually imagine yourself praying a prayer to God, thanking him that you're not like the person across the aisle from you or in front of you or that you work with? See, I would never pray that. And I don't think many of you would pray that. But... But the thing that Jesus is doing is Jesus is shining a light on the difference as it relates to being meek and humble and being filled with pride. That's the contrast that Jesus is shining a light on. You have meek and you have humble and then you have pride. And while most of you would be like me and you would admit that, you know what, I would never pray those kind of words. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Even though you might not pray that way, I'm going to tell you, even in your life and in my life, there are words that you use when you do pray or just in general conversation. And those words actually reveal the contents of your heart. Let me, let me give you a couple of statements that I think this morning, these, these statements I'm going to give you, they kind of line up with the spirit of the Pharisee. And see if you've ever said any of these. Here's the first one. You aren't going to talk to me like that. 
Anybody here ever said that? Said that to your spouse, said that to one of your kids, said that to somebody in the workplace, said that to a friend. You're not going to talk to me like that. You ever said that? Pride is the very thing that will cause you to say something like that because pride makes you where you are, are unwilling to accept criticism. And if you don't have people in your life who can say the hard things to you, then it's not because you don't need correction. It's because pride is getting in the way of being meek and humble of heart. What about this one? I'm not going to be the one that's going to apologize. I'm not going to apologize. See, here's what Proverbs says. Proverbs says that pride breeds quarrels. We may say that we're better than someone, but when we refuse to acknowledge that we are wrong, then what we're saying is that I'm better than they are. We might not feel like we can say that we're better than they are, but again, when we refuse to admit that we're wrong, that's what we're saying. And that crowds out being meek and humble in heart. How many times have you said this? It's not me, it's you. It's not me, it's you. If you would just do something differently, if they would just do something differently, because it's not me, it's you. And see, here's the thing. That's exactly what pride does. Pride is the very thing that will take you off of the hook by your words and your actions. It takes you off of the hook, but it puts the other person under the microscope. And that does not describe somebody who is gentle and humble in heart. So Jesus is contrasting in this story. Now, here's the thing. In contrast to this Pharisee, Jesus continues the parable. In verse 13, he says this. But the tax collector, two people in the story, the Pharisee and the tax collector. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In the original language, the verse actually went like this. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Now think about the story. In the story, the Pharisee elevates himself as a righteous man. The tax collector, if you will, elevates himself as a sinner. Because for the tax collector, the prayer that he's praying as he beat his chest, it was a prayer of desperation before God. And what's really interesting is this. It's interesting that Jesus takes the time to describe to us in the story both of these people's body language. The Pharisee, what does he do? He stands up so that he can draw attention to himself. But the tax collector stands away at a distance. 
And here's the thing I want you to see. When you're trying to draw attention to yourself, you never stand at a distance. But we have this tax collector in the story that can't even look to heaven. He can't even look up. This guy isn't just going through the motions. But I want you to think about this. With the filter of the Beatitudes that we looked at last week, this tax collector, as he prays, is broken in spirit. He mourns over his sin. And he is meek and humble in heart. And then Jesus concludes this parable with these words. Verse 14. I tell you that this man. Now this is really important because I don't think you've heard anybody maybe teach this to you this way. But look at the words of Jesus because I'm going to follow these up. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. I'm going to leave that up on the screen. Because I want you to think about what you see behind me. Because I can almost bet you that day on the hillsides of the Sea of Galilee in the Beatitudes, which are part of the Sermon on the Mount, as everybody heard Jesus say those words that you see on the screen behind me, they said, no, 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 Jesus, you've got this wrong. Don't you mean to say, Jesus, that it's the religious rule keeper? Isn't he the one that's justified before God? Because, I mean, think about it. The Pharisee, Jesus, that guy is a religious guy. He's a rule keeper. He's something else. I mean, you, you heard what he said, I fast twice a week. And compare that to what Leviticus says, that really you're only required to fast once a year. That's what's recommended. And I'm going to guarantee you that those people in the audience were like, Jesus, you've got this wrong. But see, here's the thing that's interesting. I want you to think about this. It's easier for you and for me to be a religious rule keeper, right? It's easy for us to be a religious rule keeper. It's easier for you and me to check the boxes than it is for us to take the time to check our heart. Amen? It's easier to check a box than it is for you to take the time to check your heart. Because you see... The one thing that keeps you and I living our life where we're doing what Jesus says, turning around, not going with the flow, but we're going against the wind. The one thing that will keep you and me living the life that we're destined to live is something called pride. It's pride. Most of us struggle. Most of you in this room watching me, most of you online struggle with the idea that in any way, shape, form, or fashion, you need help. 
Most of us struggle with, with, with giving up control and depending on God. We want control. We want our hands on the wheel. And see, that's the way I am. My family left yesterday morning really early. And they've gone to Florida. It's, it's a trip that they take most every year. And see, here's the thing. If I would have gone with them and joined them, they would have had to ride with me. Because I want to be behind the wheel. I want to have control of the car. I think I can get us there quicker and faster. Not according to what Barry said, because Barry said it took 12 hours to get there and 12 hours to get back. He said it was just terrible. But, but I want to be able to control that. I mean, I'm going to help you expand your bladder because we're not going to stop at every exit, okay? You're just going to have to do a little bit better. But I want control. That's just the way I am. And that's the very same thing that I've done when it comes to many areas of my life. I basically looked at God and said, God, God, God let me drive. God, I've got the wheel. You just slide over and let me take the wheel. I've got control. But here's the thing. Now, listen to what I'm saying. If you're going to live a life where we see in the Beatitudes a life that is defined by being meek and humble, then humble and meek means that in my life, I'm going to slide over. And in the words of that great theologian, Carrie Underwood, I'm going to let Jesus take the wheel. Amen? Only when I humble myself and let God get behind the wheel, only then can he work in me and through me. God, I can't do this. I mean, th think about your life and think how many times that you have said about some area, some job, some part, parenting, maybe, I don't know what it was, but some part of your life where at some point you slid out from under the wheel and you said, God, I can't do this. And you know what God said? Good. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Happy are you when you move over and let God take control of the wheel of your life. Because God blesses those who are humble and meek. Those that can say, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. God blesses the humble. But let's move on to the next idea. That next idea that went against the wind that Jesus taught in the sermon is the idea that God blesses the hungry. God blesses the hungry. That, that's the next idea we're going to look at. God blesses the humble and he blesses the hungry. And here's the thing. Some of you right now are going to go today and you're going to leave here immediately after this service is over. Some of you are already thinking, I wish you'd hurry up because I'm starving. You're hungry. And you're going to decide the moment that you get outside of these doors where you're going to go eat. I want this. I want that. Oh, I don't want that. Let's, let's go here. Let's go there. Again, our, our, our options are limited. And let me just tell you this. If you want to go to sunset, today's your last day. I thought I was going to be smart yesterday. 
I went at 3.30, and there was still a line. I waited about 30 minutes. I was by myself. I ended up sitting with a friend of the family, Jenny Major, who uh, goes, I think, to College Hills. And, and we sat there together, and I told her, I said, well, I hope somebody doesn't take a picture and send it to my wife. They're going to think I'm eating with another woman, you know. But I was able to sit down faster because two of us sat at the table together. And that's what's going to happen today. Some of you are going to leave, and you're going to leave this place, and you're going to decide, what are we going to eat? And this is the way that we go through life. We go through life, and we're hungry, but we don't know what we're hungry for. And people go through their life, and they try all these different things to feed their soul. And you know what happens? Many of the things that we try leave us feeling unsatisfied, unfilled, unnourished. As a matter of fact, the prophet Amos says this. They pant after the dust of the earth. Now, when the prophet Amos says that, he, he doesn't mean that they're, re- they're really literally panting after the dust of the earth. But what the prophet Amos is saying is that people are living their lives and they're going through life and they're pursuing things in life that will never satisfy. Because ultimately the things they're going after, it's just junk food. We're going after, we're we're panting after the dust of the earth. We're we're panting and we're hungering and consuming things in our life that will never satisfy. I love how the message puts this beatitude in Matthew 5, verse 6. Look at what it says. It says, you're blessed when you work, work up a good appetite for God. Because his food and his drink is the best meal you'll ever eat. It ain't a happy meal. It's the ultimate happy meal. It's a five-star meal at Jeff Ruby's that will feed your soul. Because it's the meal that satisfies. This is the meal that will fill you above all others. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6. What did Jesus say? He said, I'm the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry again. Those who believe in me will never thirst. Anyone who eats this bread will what? Will live forever. Now, let me tell you, friends, that's what you call wonder bread, right? That's wonder bread. And we think about bread, and you're going to have bread today. I had cornbread last night with butter, and it was good. But when you think about bread, bread is one of the essentials of life. It's the very reason why somebody can be placed in a penitentiary and tell you that they live for 30 years on bread and water. I mean, think about it. When there's a famine in other parts of the world, one of the first things that the other countries will do is they'll send in sacks of flour. Gold medal, white lily. Why would they send in flour? Because people can make bread. And when Jesus is saying that he's the bread of life, what he's saying is this, and I want you to hear me. He's saying, I'm the only one that can meet the need that you have. 
I'm the only one that can satisfy the hunger that you have. He's the only one that can bring satisfaction to our life. Now, now, now think about this just a moment. We, we have other people in our culture and in our world who are teaching really just the opposite. I mean, think about this, because you talk about podcasts, you talk about blogs, you talk about blogs, you talk about all these places where you can hear people, you know, expound about all the things that they know. One of the things that people are teaching these days, it's just exactly the opposite of what Jesus teaches. They're saying, you know, no, no, if you want to satisfy yourself, if if you want to find happiness and satisfaction, you just find that within yourself. People teach that. But I want you to think about that. Think about how ridiculous that is. I mean, when you're really hungry, do you ask, do you, do you tell your stomach, okay, just, just fill yourself. Just go ahead and take care of yourself, stomach. Does that work? No, it doesn't go. You have to go to an outside source. You have to go to an outside source to get some food. So when you're spiritually hungry, listen to me this morning, you don't just say to yourself, find the satisfaction inside of you, find the God within you, and just let, let, let that nourish you and take care of you. That's not the thing that you do. When you are spiritually hungry, listen to me this morning, you have to go to an outside source. You must go to the God who created you so that he can fill the only hole in you that he created. He's the one who created you with that hole, and he's the one that can fill that hole. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. But not only is Jesus the bread of life, he also said something else, referring to a well that he was standing by. John chapter 4. Jesus said, people soon become thirsty again after drinking this water, talking about the water in the well. But the water that I give them takes away their thirst altogether. It becomes a perpetual spring within them, giving them eternal life. Now think about this. Water is more essential to your life than food. What do you mean? You can go weeks without food. But you can't go more than three days without water. Because 70% of your body is water. And Jesus is saying, it's it's more than just wanting me. You've got to be able to survive. What Jesus is saying, he wants you to understand this morning, is you can't make it without him. So when Jesus says the words that you see right behind me, we have to remember that when Jesus says those words, we have to remember that Jesus was talking to a woman who had been married five five times, and she was now living with a sixth man. And even in all those relationships, Jesus understood that she was not able to find satisfaction within her soul or for her soul. And this lady, this woman at the well, thought that the reason 
that she wasn't fulfilled was because she had never found the right man. But that wasn't it. The reason was that she had never found the right Lord. The water that would truly satisfy her soul. And, and it's really interesting because Jesus doesn't beat her up because of her past. Jesus doesn't beat her up because of her past. Kind of reminds me of the guy, the home, what appeared to be a homeless guy that we had outside the church this morning. Jesus doesn't beat this woman up because of her past. We don't know what happened to that guy. We, we know something happened, and he had been put in the hospital, and he'd been released. And we didn't beat him up because of his past. We don't know what happened. See, but Jesus meets this woman at the well, and, and, and instead of, uh, of beating her up, he recognizes that this person is thirsty. But they're thirsty for the wrong thing. And you're not going to find satisfaction in something that can't bring satisfaction. But Jesus says to that woman at the well, and he says it to you this morning, I've got a water that if you truly drink this water, you will never thirst again. Friends, this is the bread and water that deep down we're all hungry for. But let me ask you this morning, what's your spiritual appetite these days? I mean, what's your spiritual appetite? Are you still spiritually hungry for the things of God? Do you still say, God, I want you, uh, I want you in all different areas of my life. I want you in all things of my life. God, I want all the things that you have to offer me. Or, or, or has God just become a, a spiritual convenience to you? Do you still hunger and thirst for God? Or, or is God like a spiritual hors d'oeuvre that you just come in and you just partake of it on Sunday morning at Crossroads? Because, see, here's the thing. There's a connection between your closeness to God and your appetite for God. There's a connection between your closeness to God and your appetite for God. And right now, I'm just going to tell you, if you're not close to God right now, if you don't feel close to God, it's not God's fault. It's not your, your, your parents' fault. It's not your spouse's fault. Because the Scripture tells us that those who hunger will be filled. And some of you right now are looking at me and some of you listening and watching online are saying, you know what, Randy, I used to have a hunger for God. When I first became a follower of Jesus, you could not keep me away from the church. You could not keep me from being involved. I was listening to the music. I was listening to the message. I was reading the books. I had this hunger, but I just don't have that hunger anymore. Well, let me ask you, if that's you, what happened? Why don't you have the hunger? Because let me tell you this morning, I want you to hear what I'm saying. A loss of appetite for God indicates an illness. Just like it does in the body. A loss of appetite 
indicates that you're sick. Because when somebody doesn't eat, it indicates that they're sick. And a sign that they're getting better is when they start eating again. And let me tell you this morning, if you don't have a hunger and thirst for God like you once did, I can tell you why. It's because you're stuffing yourself with junk food. You've bought into the idea that everybody else has. And you're stuffing your life, you're stuffing stuffing yourself with things that don't satisfy. You're literally filling yourself, like Amos said, with the dust of the earth. You're not setting yourself apart as a follower of Jesus Christ. What are you doing? You're watching the same Netflix shows that everybody else are watching. You're reading the same books. You're listening to the same music. And because of that, you have no appetite for the things in your life that really count. So if you've lost it, how do you get it back? How do you get that hunger and thirst back? How does God restore that hunger and thirst for him? Well, remember when the children of Israel were led out into the wilderness across the Red Sea? They wandered around in the desert for 40 years. They didn't find one Chick-fil-A. But when they got thirsty and they got hungry, every night, God dropped manna from heaven to feed them. Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 8 <laughs> Moses tells us, God humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna. Now, God's feeding the Israelites with this manna of food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, think about the Israelites because God let them get hungry. And it humbled them to the point that they recognized their need for God. And God met that need, and he filled them. And see, here's the thing this morning. I think God will allow circumstances to come into your life to get your attention. God will allow things to happen to you so that you recognize and see that you need God's help. And if today you're saying that you're so unsatisfied with your life, that my life is so unfilling, that, that I look at my life and it's a mess, then you know what I say to you? It's going to surprise you. If you say my life is not filling and it's a mess, you know what I say? I say congratulations. Because now you're where you need to be. You're humble and hungry. Now you know what doesn't satisfy, but what will satisfy. And you will be happy when you hunger and thirst after the things of God. See, I don't know what problem you're experiencing in your life right now. I don't know what problems have made their way into your life over the last 17 months. 
But here's what I do know. God uses those problems to get our attention and to help us recognize that what we're really hungering for is Him. And that's what God is saying. God says, I created you with that hole in your heart. And that hole can only be filled with me. You know, it's interesting if you go to the Holy Land. One of, one of, the, one of the things that people want to see the most is the place of Jesus' birth. And, and you expect it to be a stable, and you expect it to be something like what you see at Christmas that we'll put out, you know, with animals and sheep and a, and a really, you know, nice kind of a no room at the end kind of place, kind of a stable where you're just going to see it. But it's not that way at all. Here's the thing. Actually, the place where Jesus was born has been made into this, like, it's like a church. It's called the Church of the Nativity. And, and what you want to do if you actually see the place where Jesus is born, where it was believed that Jesus was born, you have to go down to this place and, and, and it gets to be very, very uncomfortable. And you get to the place where you really, if you want to see it and you kind of want to touch it, it's been a long time since I've been there, but you have to get down on your knees and you kind of get into this cave. And what's really interesting is this. The only way that you can come to Jesus is that you come humble and you come hungry. That you come on your knees. If you want to experience God, you get on your knees and you do like the tax collector. You say, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. The sinner in need of your grace. Because my hunger and my thirst can only be satisfied by you. So how about it? How about today you stoop down? How about right now where you're seated, you stoop down and you let the Spirit of God come by and touch you and break you and empty you. How about right now, wherever you are, whether it's in this room or at home or in your car or at the beach, how about right now you let the Spirit of God empty your pride? And how about you say, God, you know what? I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come humble and hungry. And God, give me the bread so that I will never be hungry again. Give me that water, that living water so that I will never thirst again. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Are you ready to do that? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Are you ready? Just like if I were to take you to Bethlehem right now to see the birth of, of, of Jesus, the birthplace of Jesus, you would have to get on your knees. You would have to humbly get down to, to really see the place where Jesus, where, it, where they believe that Jesus was born. But I'm asking you about your life right now. Are you ready to humbly get down on your knees and to allow the Spirit of God to touch you and to break you and to bring out of you all the things that He desires for you and for your life? It will only happen when you humble yourself. When you leave pride behind, 
and you hunger after the things of God. God, this morning we come to you. A broken people. A broken people in need of a touch. And God, we recognize, we feel, we know your Holy Spirit is here. And God, we ask you by your Spirit to do what only you can do in our life. For some of us, it's a major operation. For others, it's just, it's just a touch. It's a, it's a breaking. It's recognizing that you are God and we are not. So God, in this morning, we lean into you because we want to be the people that Jesus talked about, those people who are humble and those people who are hungry. Poor in spirit, people who mourn, who recognize that we are totally dependent on you, God, to fill that hole that you created in our heart. God, do what only you can do as we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing that together in faith. Come on, here we go. 